Matthew chapter 9. And I'm going to start reading at verse 36, Matthew 9, 36. Up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus has, we've had the, the birth story, we've had the calling of the disciples, we've had the wilderness temptations and the baptism, we've had the Sermon on the Mount, and then in chapters 8 and 9, you have Jesus going and doing a lot of mighty deeds, miracles. And then things shift at the end of chapter 9, start of chapter 10. Uh, instead of Jesus pretty much doing everything, he then commissions and sends the disciples. And this passage has, has been in my mind as well as a phrase, again, just chatting to Linda about, about a week ago, and a phrase came into conversation and started to kick around my mind. What do you see? What do you feel? What will you do? So that's the, the thoughts that we're running with. What do you see? What do you feel? And what will you do? Let me read from the end of Matthew 9 from verse 36. And then into a little bit of chapter 10. Sorry, verse 35 of Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then he names the twelve in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus is on a bit of a preaching tour and on one particular occasion we read that when he saw the crowds he had compassion on them and there are two things that, that Matthew uses to describe what Jesus saw. The first phrase in my Bible it says they were harassed and helpless. Harassed and helpless. In the message it says that the crowds, the people were confused and aimless. Now, the original language has got a word, ripto, which means cast down. Basically, it's the picture of somebody whose face is being pushed down into the ground. That is the image that we are, that we are given here of what Jesus sees when he looks upon humanity. He sees people who are oppressed, pushed down. 
And if they are oppressed, then there must be an oppressor. There must be someone or something that is pushing people down. But that's the way Jesus views these people as he sees them. Harassed and helpless. Confused and aimless. Held down and oppressed by the devil. That is the position of humanity outside of relationship with Christ. And he also says that they are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, in the Old Testament, you get that phrase a few times. Whenever the people do not have a leader and do not have a king, they're described as being sheep without a shepherd. You see, Old Testament kings and leaders were modeled on shepherds. David, the greatest king, was a shepherd before he was king. Moses was a shepherd before he became the leader of Israel and led them out of Egypt. Shepherds are God's model for leaders, whether they are kings or pastors or whatever they are. Every single believer as well, I believe, is called to shepherd others. Because the the point of a king in the ancient world was not just to, to rule and to give orders and to collect tribute. The point was to protect the people, to provide for the people, to protect them, keep them safe. And if the sheep did not have a shepherd, then they were vulnerable. They were exposed. They were easy to to pick off by an enemy they were not provided for, they were not protected. And the point of having a shepherd was to protect the people. Ezekiel 34 is a passage that we touched on a couple of months ago, way back near the start of lockdown, looking at at Jesus as being the good shepherd. And in Ezekiel 34, God raises a complaint against bad shepherds and against those who do not look after people well. In fact, he he, uh, condemns the rams who trample down the pasture so that there's nothing left for the sheep to eat. So Jesus, can you picture the scene? He looks across this sort of sea of humanity, people who are made in the image of God, every single one of them made in the image of God. Their skin color doesn't matter, their age, their gender, none of that takes away or changes the fact that every human being is made in the image of God. And Jesus looks at them and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, vulnerable, exposed. He sees them cast down. That's what he sees. What do you see? What do I see? As you walk down the street, as you drive through the town, as you go to the shop, do you lift your head to look at people? I hate masks, these face masks. It's not because they are uncomfortable. It's not because it's difficult to breathe or that they feel warm. or Those are minor irritations. The thing I hate most about face masks is it covers so much of a person's face. And I like looking at people's faces when I'm walking around. I like to, to, to look and to wonder what is going on in their lives. You know, walk around. We've been in Belfast a couple of times lately and to, and to walk around and just look at people in the street and think, what what is going on? And you see a bunch of young kids, teenage boys who are being mischievous on the street and being loud and rowdy. Are they just an irritation or do we look at them and think, I wonder what's going on at home? I wonder what stability there is in family relationships. I wonder what the house is like, what the income is like. 
what the friendships are like, what the relationships are like. When we see a, a couple walking down the street that look, you know, beautiful and, and perfect, and I wonder, you know, is he treating her well? Is he cherishing her? Is he looking after her? Or is he taking advantage of her? Why is she with him? I, I, I love looking into people's faces and these masks that cover up half of our face that we can't see the expression. But what do you see when you look at people? Jesus sees people who are harassed and helpless and confused and aimless, battering away at life with no real sense of purpose in the whole thing. And not only do we read about what Jesus sees, but we also read about what he feels when he sees these people. Verse 6 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, compassion is a word that I think is sometimes a little bit misunderstood in, in modern usage. Uh, if, if I was to describe somebody as compassionate, you would maybe think, well, that person is probably kind, and maybe a wee bit soft around the edges. You know, compassionate person is gentle and, and kind and soft. And that is not what the word means. The word literally means calm, means with Passion means suffer. If you've ever heard of the passion of the Christ, that means the suffering of Jesus. And compassion means with suffer or suffer with. And whenever Jesus sees the crowds and he realizes that their lives are harassed and helpless and cast down into the dirt, he does not just have pity on them. Pity is not good enough, okay? It's not good enough to just feel sorry for someone and briefly think, isn't it a shame that, that their life has turned out the way it is? Jesus suffers with. In other words, he feels what's going on in these people's lives. He feels for them. In, in, in the original language, it, it literally is a word that means your gut he feels something in his gut. There's an ache, there's a twisting, there's a pain as he sees humanity in that state and he suffers with them. You know, the only person in the Old Testament who the word compassion is used about is God. Let me go and, and, and read you a couple of verses from Exodus 3. Whenever God calls Moses at the burning bush, there's a, there's a lovely verse in Exodus 3, verse 7 and into verse 8. This is one to, to underline or even underline parts of it as you, as you read it. In, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, so the context is, of course, that God's people are in slavery. So they are oppressed and they are downtrodden. And their faces are being pushed down into the dirt by the oppressor, by the Egyptians and Pharaoh. They're confused about why they're there. They're aimless. There's no hope and there's no future for them. And in verse 7, God says to Moses, I have indeed seen. I've seen it. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard. I've heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. I have seen 
I have heard and I am concerned. This notion that God is a million miles away beyond the blue, completely separated from humanity, is a completely false and unbiblical idea. God is near. He says, I see it and I hear it and I'm concerned about the suffering of these people. And at the start of verse 8, so I have come down to rescue them. I have seen, I've heard, I'm concerned, I have come down. God hears and sees the suffering of people and he feels it. And the question that I want to put to you and that I feel God putting to me in this last few days, what what do you see, what do I see, and what do we feel about it? Do we ignore it? Do we walk by people and just turn a blind eye? Are the glasses fogged up? I don't know if you've worn a mask and worn glasses or worn sunglasses and you find yourself getting all fogged up and you can't see clearly. Are you not looking at what's going on around you? Because I believe God is stirring us to look and stirring us to feel what he feels for the suffering that people are going through. We might say something more the lines, the lines of, I saw something and it broke my heart. That's what, what Jesus is saying here. When it says he has compassion, when he feels something in his gut, he sees these people and it breaks his heart. What do you see that causes you to feel brokenhearted? Do you look at young people in the street and feel anything or do you see them as an irritation and a noise or do you feel something? Do you feel the compassion that God feels? And then in, back in Matthew 9, what Jesus does next, having seen it himself and having felt it himself, he then draws the attention of the disciples to it. Now we're going somewhere here. We're going on a process. And if you follow Jesus and you follow this process, you will go through the same experience as these disciples go through. He saw the crowds in verse 36. He had compassion because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Is that not a good description of so many people? Like sheep without a shepherd. Vulnerable. How many people will you walk past on the street in the next week and because they are vulnerable, somebody is mistreating them. Somebody is holding their face down in the dirt. They might, the face might look wonderful. They might be makeup on and it might look just fantastic. But behind the scenes, somebody is holding their face down in the dirt. Does that make you feel anything? Jesus says that, that he sees them like this. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples. So the disciples are with him. He looks over the crowds himself. He feels this. And then he draws the attention of the disciples to what he has seen. It's as if he says to them, these words are not recorded, but by drawing their attention to it, it's as if he says, do you see this? As he looks at it and he feels it, He turns to them, look at this. The harvest, he says, is plentiful. But do you see it? Do we lift our eyes from our own concerns for long enough to see the harvest that is there? If there's no harvest taking place in the church, it's not because there is any lack 
of a crop out there that is ready and ripe for harvesting. Jesus draws their attention to it. Do you see this? Or have you so blinkered yourself by distractions and other things that there is no time or space in your life to see what Jesus sees? Because if you saw it, you'd be moved by it. And if you're moved by it, you'll do something about it. And if you're not doing anything about it, and if you're not moved by it, then there's a good chance you're not looking. That Jesus would draw your attention and say, just stop for a while with all of the distractions, all of the busyness, all of the extra things that you're doing. Just stop for a while and open your eyes and look at humanity right now in August 2020. Look, can you see it? Are you moved by it? Jesus, I, I believe, gets really frustrated when we refuse to look at what he wants to show us, when we just go through the motions. And I do believe right now that, that the main priority is not how do we go back to doing the things that we used to do and enjoy doing. And the main priority is what does he want us to do now? Right now, what does Jesus want his church to look like now? One of the, the great sort of illustrations that was used by some church leaders at the start of lockdown was that by losing Sunday mornings, we have lost our queen. It's a chess analogy. On a chess board, the queen is the piece that is most versatile and most powerful and you can do most things with. And the, for the church, our Sunday morning service for a long time has been our queen. That's the thing we do that ticks lots, lots of boxes and gets lots of things done and connects with lots of people. The queen is down and the queen has been taken. And we must learn to do church with the other pieces Instead of just bending over backwards to try to get that queen back up again, we need to learn to live and move differently in the meantime. And I think if Jesus was here, and I've often thrown this thought out to you guys in church, if Jesus was here in the great town of Tandragee, so just in case you have stumbled on this video from somewhere else on earth, we're in Tandragee and you need to pray for Tandragee. But if Jesus was to show up in Tandragee this afternoon and he was just here for one night, where would he go? I don't know that he would be going online and searching the local churches to try to figure out what service to go to on Sunday night. I don't think he would do that. I think he would seek and save the lost. That's where he would go. If you were his guide for the evening, that's where he would want to be taken. He would say to you, take me to where I will find sheep who have no shepherd. Take me to them. Don't take me to church. Church services are good. That's great. But take me this one night that I have physically in this town. Go to the places where you know there are sheep without a shepherd. Where you know there are people who are harassed and helpless. Take me there. That's what Jesus, I believe, is still in the mission and in the business of doing. Seeking and saving the lost. Making disciples. So once Jesus has seen it and he has felt it and he showed it to the disciples and said, look at this harvest, it's plentiful. 
Then the third question that I put to you at the start, what, will you, what do you see, what do you feel? This is a message, I, I hope anybody that listens to it gets something out of it. This is a message for Table Church, you lot. What do you see, what do you feel about it, what will you do? What will we do together and what will you do as an individual? There are two things that I see as I read on the passage that Jesus expects the disciples to do. The first one is in verse 38. Verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Classic story of the church. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So to answer the question, I can't answer the first two questions for this morning. I can't answer what do you see because that's up to you. And I can't answer what do you feel because that's up to you as well. But I can answer the question, what will you do? What should you do? The first thing you should do is pray. Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. That's the first response pray. And when Jesus tells them to pray, I think this should help us to understand a little bit about what prayer is about. A wrong understanding of prayer is, I tell God all the things that he should do for me. All the inconveniences in my life that I need sorted out, all the people that I need him to change, all the difficult circumstances that I want him to take away, I tell God what I want him to do for me. That's not prayer. Prayer in this passage, and I believe in a a deeper, more mature understanding of prayer, is not me telling God what he should do for me. It's me getting into God's presence and listening to him telling me what I should do for him. There's a big difference. There's a huge difference. And what happens here is that the disciples begin to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into the harvest. And then something awful happens in your Bible. There's a chapter break. It's a shocking chapter break that just wrecks everything. The big old number 10 appears there at the end of chapter 9 and the start of chapter 10. It totally ruins the flow of what's going on. You maybe read chapter 9 one day and you read chapter 10 the next day and you don't get it. Forget the chapter break and then you will see what happens. At the end of chapter 9, you pray. Pray that workers will be sent into the harvest. And I can imagine the disciples saying, yes, we're going to have a prayer meeting. We're going to pray for workers to get sent into the harvest. Yes, we'll do that, Jesus. And as they pray, things get turned around because it goes from pray that the Lord will send out workers into the harvest to chapter 10, verse 5, these 12, the disciples, get sent out. Because, and this is a key reality of what it means to pray for people. The disciples are given the burden from Jesus. This is what I see and what I feel and what I want you to see. Now pray about it. And as they pray about it, then they become the answer to their own prayers. 
Lord, please send out workers into the harvest. Please send someone. God, do something about this. As that is prayed, it turns into, instead of being God, do something about this, it becomes God saying, Peter, do something about this. Andrew, do something about this. Matthew, John, James, do something about this. As they pray, they start to take on the burden of what they have seen and heard. And that is why your prayer life is so important. And the corporate prayer life of the church is so important. We've been locked down and we've been praying on Zoom. We don't need to do that anymore. We can come in here doing everything under regulations and we can pray together. We must be doing that, church. Otherwise, we will lose the burden that Jesus is giving us for this town and this community. We've got to pick up the momentum in corporate prayer because you you become woven into the need. Listen listen to this illustration that I, I think might help you. When I was in school, we studied this hateful thing called the Bayeux Tapestry. 1066, William the Conqueror, King Harold, King Harald, all these different names that you get mixed up and this awful tapestry that torments children to this very day. I picture the story of this town as a tapestry and lots of different images and people and characters and shop owners and young people and you know the town all in this tapestry. And what happens, church, as we come together and pray, and I think geographically praying in the town is important. Not everyone can do that because of work commitments, distance, stuff like that. But if you're, if you're fit to do that, to geographically be here praying, I, I picture what happens is that God gets a needle and a thread and he takes me and you and he squeezes us through the eye of the needle and he starts to weave us into the tapestry of the town. That it becomes part of us and we become part of it. And that's what happens to these disciples. Jesus sees it. Jesus feels it. Jesus shows it to them. They pray and God starts to weave them into it. And once you've been woven into it, you can't be separated from it again. And it becomes your burden, your town, your heart, your ministry, your young people, your old people, your marriages, your singles, your whatever it may be. You get woven into it. But if you don't pray, the weaving can't happen. It is so important that if we are to follow this process that I believe Jesus is right now putting his finger on table church and saying, this is, this is something that needs to happen now. The, the, the Sabbath of lockdown has gone on long enough. The Lent of lockdown, whatever way you want to look at it, it's time to advance and progress and move forward. But first thing you do is you pray together about it so that I can weave you into it. Take that. Up to this point, the disciples have been passengers in the car. Jesus has done all the driving. He's the one doing the miracles. He's the one uh, doing the teaching. He's, the, he's, he's in charge. He's doing everything. And now at this moment, in verse 1 of chapter 10, he calls the disciples and he gave them authority. He gives them the keys of the car. He says, right, you drive. 
I've been driving around long enough. You've been in the back seat. You've been in the passenger seat. Now you drive. I'm giving you the authority to do what I have been doing. So the first thing we do is we pray. And the second thing that we do is that we go. And we, we're, this community is not called right now to go beyond this community. This is where we're called to. Hopefully, over the longer term, our influence and our reach will go further. I believe it will. But right now, we don't have to pay travel expenses. We don't have to go across the world. God's calling us to minister to this locality at this moment. So going does not involve going very far. But it does involve going somewhere. Not just church. It involves going to where the harassed and the helpless are, to where the sheep without a shepherd are, and bringing them the authority that Jesus has given us. And I want to just read a couple of verses. Jesus then goes on to to give them a sort of a manifesto for mission in the rest of chapter 10. I just want to pick out a couple of verses at the start, and maybe one or two throughout it, and let you see what what it should look like. In verse 6, I'm going to read this from the the message translation. Matthew 10, 6. Don't begin by traveling to some far off place to convert unbelievers. And don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Go to the lost, confused people right here in the neighborhood. That's it. That's simple. Right here. He's not asking us initially to tackle some huge uh, societal institution or something. He's just saying, go to the lost, confused, harassed, helpless, cast down, oppressed people in the neighborhood. Just go to them. Just go to the kids in the street. Just go to the lonely people across the road. Just go to the single mums. Just go where you are and bring them the message. And I do believe that this is one of the hardest mission fields on earth, the Western world in general, because it has looked at the church and has rejected the church and has rejected religion, but it's never seen Jesus. It really hasn't. So many people have looked at the church and the behavior of Christians and said, I don't want to be around that. And they then think they have rejected Jesus. They haven't. They've never seen him. And we're to show them what he is like. And in order to do that, we must go to them and re-evangelize this this nation, this part of the world. Look where Jesus goes in, in 935. Just note this little phrase. He went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues. He went to their places. He didn't go and just pitch up a tent and put Jesus International Ministries on the front of it and expect people to come. He went to where they were. He, went, he made the jump culturally. And we need to make the jump culturally. If you're going to connect with the harassed and the helpless, it's got to be us making the jump. Not expecting people to suit up and shine their shoes and come into church. We make the jump. Jesus went to their places. And I, and I want you to note a phrase. Again, if you, if you do a bit of underlining in your Bible, underline these three words at the start of 
verse 7 in chapter 10. Because everything else is contingent on these three words. As you go. Right? What, what do you see? What do you feel? What will you do? You will pray and you will go. And as you go, here's some of the stuff that Jesus says that you will do as you go. Tell them that the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God has come. That's the gospel message. The gospel message is not, you're a sinner and you're going to hell and you better turn and repent before you burn forever. That is not the gospel that Jesus preached. The gospel Jesus preached is, the kingdom of God is here. Turn around and think differently and live differently. That's the gospel. You heard about it a couple of weeks ago as Ruth explained repentance as a new way of thinking, kingdom thinking. Not just turning from sin, although that's part of it, but a movement forward into a new way of thinking. Tell people that the kingdom is here. Open the Bible and talk about Jesus with people and tell them a new king is here. The town is under new management. Another thing that will happen in in these verses, as you go, bring health to the sick. We have a tendency to just want miraculous things to happen in church. We get together, we do our Sunday thing, and we want God to show up and heal the sick. I believe if we want to see the sick healed, we will see it more as we go. Those three words are very important. As you go. As you go to the harassed and helpless, look for opportunities to pray for the sick. Because part of Jesus' manifesto for mission is to bring health to the sick. He also says, raise the dead as you go. Raise the dead. And as I bring this into our world, I don't think it it, it necessarily exclusively applies to physical death. I think it's much more a case of spiritual death. As you go, raise to life those who are dead spiritually. Walking dead. Zombies from a spiritual point of view. And an interesting little thing to do in this part of Matthew's gospel, we homework for you this afternoon, go into chapter 8 and chapter 9 and underline every time that you see Jesus telling somebody to get up or raising somebody up. It happens several times. And I'll tell you how many you can go looking for them. But every time Jesus comes into contact with people, they get lifted up. Do you hear that, church? Because Jesus sees people who are harassed and helpless, ripto, pushed down, oppressed, faces in the dirt, if it's appropriate to use the image of the devil's knee on their necks, pushing them down. But when Jesus comes along, they get up. And that's the mission of the church, is to go to the cast down and raise them up to life. They're also told to, in, in the message version to touch the untouchables. Cleanse the lepers is what our other versions will say. Touch the ones that nobody else is touching. Go to the people who are lost and forgotten about and outcast from society. Go to them. And don't just tell them to get up. 
reach out a hand and pull them up. Touch the untouchables. Lift them up out of the dirt. Another thing that he says is kick out the demons. Drive out the demons. That's part of the mission of a church in a town is to drive out that which is evil and that which is spiritually dark and dominant and influential in people's lives. What on earth are we thinking that after lockdown eases, we don't pray? (laughs) What's going on? Because we have to be driving out the spiritual darkness and the spiritual strongholds that exist in a town. It won't happen if we don't geographically gather together and pray and drive out. It's part of the mission of the people of God to drive out dark influences. It won't happen if we're not here. As you go, prayer is universal. Prayer transcends time and space. We can pray right now for anyone anywhere on earth, but there is a power in geographically praying in a town, in a location, against the powers of darkness that are in that place. As you go, as you go, not as you stay at home in your comfy chair with a cup of coffee praying, as you go, drive out the demons. You have been treated generously, so live generously. Freely you've received, freely give. You know what? It costs a lot more to give your time than it does to give your money. Giving money can be easy. It can be really easy to give money. But to give time is a much more precious thing. To invest time in people. To go to that calendar on your phone and to block out an evening, a slot in the week that you are going to invest some time into some harassed, helpless, pushed down, oppressed people in this community. So what do you see? What do you see? And what do you feel? We're very judgmental. Sometimes we'll look at someone. Again, I mentioned kids on the street in Belfast, kids on the street in Tannergy. What do you see? Do you see kids being a nuisance? Look at what they're drinking. Look at what they're smoking. Listen to their language. Isn't that awful? No, Jesus says, no. Look behind that. Don't be so superficial. Look behind that. What do you see? I see a generation who if somebody does not grab them and help them to get up, they will be lost and they will propagate another generation who will be lost. That's it, Jesus says. You're seeing it now. You're seeing behind the superficial outward behavior and you're seeing the heart. And you're starting to feel what he feels. One last thing as I finish that Jesus says in this passage in verse 16. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. It's not often that Jesus tells his people to be like snakes. It's, you know, a snake in the Bible is obviously a, a negative image. But snakes are cunning creatures. They are shrewd. And Jesus says you should imitate that characteristic of a snake. You need to be sharp. You need to be smart. And right now, the church, I believe, has got to get creative and smart about how we are going to go about this mission 
in this time and in this town. How are we going to do that? We need to be creative. We need to be smart. We can't just sit around licking our wounds saying, oh, we used to be able to do this and we used to be able to do that and we can't do that. We can't just sit with a pause button eternally pressed waiting for God to press play again on the things that we like. We have got to be smart and innovative and think about how we can connect with the harassed and the helpless at this time. This is going to go on for a while. Even if restrictions ease and things come and go, this thing's going to be with us for a long time. We need to adapt. So what do you see? What do you feel? And what are you going to do about it? You need to pray and you need to go. Amen. Let me just pray a blessing on you for the week and hope to see you on Tuesday night. Father, Thank you, Lord, that you have placed us here in this place at this point in history to see your kingdom come. And Father, I pray that you would fill us all afresh today with your Holy Spirit and that you would awaken us and you would flood our minds and our hearts with creativity and innovation and ideas and drive and passion to move forwards, to displace the darkness rather than sitting and waiting around that we would advance in the name of Jesus and see your kingdom come. I pray you would bless this people, Father, this day. Give them tremendous rest, Lord. Keep your hand upon them and protect them from all harm and fill them with fire and passion for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us and I will see you on Tuesday night. Keep an eye on WhatsApp, the details.